It's hard to believe Thanksgiving is almost here, right? Hard to believe, but we want to go ahead and get in that spirit of Thanksgiving. Now, with that said, which, by the way, we're actually going to tie into our message a little bit today, I want you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 11 if you haven't already done so. We're quickly moving to the end of this series through Nehemiah. In fact, next week, we will finish out this wonderful portion of Scripture. And hopefully along the way that you've seen God's hand at work in the life of his people as well as understood this, that God has a plan for your life. Let's remember, as we've been studying the book of Nehemiah, we've been seeing the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem, but we also discovered that the greatest rebuilding project that was taking place was actually in the rebuilding of the lives of the people. The people of Israel had suffered exile because of their rebellion against God, but God, being a gracious and loving God, worked to restore the people and to offer them hope. Truly, Nehemiah is about God working in the life of his people. In fact, more so than it is in the life of a man named Nehemiah. In fact, yes, God's been working through Nehemiah, but it's not about Nehemiah. It's about God and working in the life of his people. You see, Nehemiah's name did not appear at all in chapter 9. It appears in a list of many names in chapter 10 very briefly. It will not be even seen again here in chapter 11. His name will reappear in chapter 12 and 13. You'll read just where it says I as Nehemiah is writing about the events of what's happening, but his name's not really there. Now, I only point this out to remind you that God was working through Nehemiah, all right? But the book was not about Nehemiah. It is about God and his people. The book of Nehemiah is recorded history so we understand how God worked in the lives of his people to rebuild, yes, Jerusalem as a city of God, but how God worked to rebuild the lives of the people of God. Now today, what we'll see in a few moments is some other commitments that God causes people to make, or, or should we say commitments, that we need to consider in order to be faithful to God's call on our life so that his work will continue to be done in our midst today. Let's pick up reading Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 1. It says, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of 10 to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of 10 remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Now to grasp the importance of what we read here, we must understand the situation at hand where the people are here in Nehemiah's day. Keep in mind, the walls of Jerusalem at this point had been rebuilt, but there was still much work to be done. In fact, to live in the city of Jerusalem at this point would have been a great sacrifice for the people. That is, in fact, the first point I want you to grasp this morning. The people were called to sacrifice. You know, there is maybe even a small degree today that the people in our day sympathize with the people in Nehemiah 11. Because many people today, they still want to live outside of the busyness and the congestion of large cities. People today want to flock to the suburbs because there's more room since the city can be an uncomfortable place. However, in Nehemiah's day and time, the difficulty of living in the city was greater even than our day because in Nehemiah's day, it was an agrarian society. I mean, people depended upon the land for their sustenance. The ability to have crops and livestock meant both food to eat and resources to sell for income. And so to give up living the life in the country, which provided land for the crops and livestock in order to move to the city was a huge sacrifice. Not only that, in Jewish society, the land represented the heritage of a family. Passing down the ancestral land ensured the preservation of the family heritage, as well as preserving the covenant between God and the people. 
Preserving the land and passing it down to the next generation symbolized the adherence to the covenant that God had made with his people and reminded of the promises that God had completed to the people. You know, God had promised them, y'all remember, God had promised a land to the people. Do y'all remember that, right? That's a big deal. And so this land was symbolic of God's covenant with his people. So to move from the country to the city would not have been an easy choice for these reasons. Plus, catch this, to move to the city meant to move to the place that was the focus of the enemies. I mean, since the city was still the place of governmental seat and the symbol of strength, enemies would focus their attention on the city. And so to move to the city meant to move into harm's way. In fact, can you imagine today being asked to move to Gaza this morning? All right. If it's today, I'm moving you to Gaza. You ready to go? Any takers today? Absolutely not, right? Because you're saying, I'm not going to go where there's going to be a target on my back. That's how it would have been in the day of Nehemiah. Now, on the other hand, there was a great importance for the city in regards to what was happening in Nehemiah. Remember, Jerusalem was the city that God had said would bear his name. It would be in Jerusalem where the temple would exist and the people would gather in order to worship God together. Have a strong Jerusalem was a statement to the people that God was with them and a statement to the surrounding people that God was strong and that God was with the Jewish people. A strong Jerusalem was necessary if the Jewish people were going to be strong as a nation and community. In fact, if you want to know why Jerusalem still makes it into the news today and time, it is because God still has plans for the Jewish people and Jerusalem still is a part of those plans. Okay. Now, because of the importance of having a strong Jerusalem, it was important that people repopulate Jerusalem in order to help it survive. So just as the people had been called to give a tithe of their income, now the sacrifice they are called to make is actually a sacrifice of lives in the sense that it says that lots were drawn so that one-tenth of the people would be chosen to move back to the city. Now, quick thing, two quick things I want you to notice here. First of all, the leaders set the pace. Look back at verse one. It says, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, all right? Again, as the start, the leaders were already in Jerusalem. They had resettled there. They were establishing order. They were bringing life back to the city. They were doing their part to make Jerusalem vital again. The lesson here for anyone who wants to be a leader is this. If you wanna be a leader, you set the pace. You don't ask people to do what you're not willing to do yourself. Nehemiah and the other leaders were going to call the people to repopulate the city, but it wasn't until after they had already made the sacrifice. They had already begun the process themselves. It is then that we read that the rest of the people cast lots to see which one of the 10 would move to the city. But don't miss verse two. Look at what it said in verse two. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Now, I'll be honest with you. People have translated or understood, interpreted this verse different ways. Some believe that this was a second group. The one-tenth were chosen, and then another people, group of people volunteered and said, we're going to go. However, I don't read it that way. It appears from reading that those who were chosen by Lot accepted that they were being chosen by God, by his sovereign hand in their lives, and so they willingly offered to go to Jerusalem and live. They didn't put up a fight saying, well, this is not fair. You know, they didn't show, throw that little pity fit. They simply said, listen, we're willing to do what God wants. They were willing to sacrifice the good for the people and most importantly, for the will of God to be completed. And what we need to see clearly here is that at times, hear me, all right, for following God and doing his will will require a sacrifice in your life. 
Now, I know I've made similar observation in past weeks because we saw where Nehemiah was doing God's will and things were not always easy. And here the clear lesson is at times the will of God will mean sacrifice. Now, after we read about those who sacrifice going into the city, we have this long list of names, names that I'm sure you don't want me to read this morning, right? Jacob said last week he wasn't as brave as me, so he wasn't going to read the list of chapter 10, but maybe he was just smarter than me that he knew better than to try, right? right? Well, I'm not going to read all the list of names that basically goes on for more than 50 verses, all right? But I do need to point out something. The names listed here are important enough for God to have them listed, and here's what they show us. The people were involved in service. Now, let me do give you a sampling today. Verse 10. Of the priest, Jedidiah, the son of Jorib, Jachin, Sariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Meshulam, son of Zodak, son of Meroth, son of Abitu, ruler of the house of God, and their brothers who did work the house, 822. Jacob probably was smarter than me, right? <laughs> because you see a few of these names, they're hard, right? But what we see here is this is a few of the names who worked in the temple. And we're told of those went 822 were going to be working in the temple. Then we read verse 15. It says, and of the Levites, Shemaiah, the son of Hasab, son of Azrakam, son of Hashabadiah, son of Buni, and Shabbathai, and Josabad of the chiefs of the Levites, who are over the outside work of the house of God. All right, those listed here took care of what took place on the outside of the temple. I mean, maybe they took care of the shrubs. Maybe these were the landscapers, Right. I don't know, maybe, or maybe they attended to judging and the other civil affairs that were part of the priestly duties that took place outside of the walls of the temple. Their service in whatever form it took place was outside the walls of the temple. Then in verse 17, we continue to read, and Mataniah, the son of Micah, the son of Zabdi, the son of Asaph, who was the leader of the praise who gave thanks. In other words, some of Luke's ancestors served there. Right? Yeah, just kidding, at least a few people laughed, right? But seriously, there are those who served in the leading of the worship. Some translations even say in leading in prayer. Whatever it looked like, we know those listed truly were some who served and helped the people praise and give thanks to God. Now, these lists are not exhaustive. In fact, other parts of Scripture list more names of those who are part of this group who went back to Jerusalem. I could also point out other tasks that were done by people listed here. But well, here's what's clear, what I want you to see. Clearly, these people went back and they served. They gave of their gifts in order to honor God. Here's something that we can also recognize for the most part. These people listed here are unknown to us, right? When you think about people in the Bible, how many of you think of Jedediah, Shemaiah, and Mataniah? None of y'all, right? No, no, because maybe you'd rather talk about John, Peter, David, and Moses because those names are easier, amen? Right, those are easier. That's who we're gonna talk about. Right? Th these names in Nehemiah are names that you are not familiar with, I even more, if you're reading through this text on your own, we've talked about it in the past. If you're reading through this and you get to this list on your own, what are you gonna do? You're gonna skip it, right? If you don't skip it, you're gonna read it so fast you have no idea what you just read, Right? I'm not alone. We all do that. Well, I know that. In fact, the, the, though, this is what I want you to say. The fact that God had their names written down and preserved through the ages remind us that everyone and every act of service is important to God. 
Even though these individuals are really unknown to us, it does not mean they are unknown to God for they are known by God and important to him and their service critical in what God was accomplishing. Think about it this way. All right, I don't know if you've ever been in Arlington National Cemetery. Go ahead and put this picture up. In Arlington National Cemetery, there are rows and rows and rows of white tombstones that just like this. My guess is this. Most of you, maybe all of you, do not know the names written on those crosses or those tombstones. Do y'all know those names? My guess is no. Some of you may not even know a single name on one of those crosses. To most Americans, the names on those tombstones are unknown to us. But you know what? Every name on those tombstones are important to us because each name represents a person who served our country in order that we might have the freedoms and opportunities that we have today. Right? Just because you don't know their names does not mean they are unimportant, for each name is important, and the service that each person rendered for our nation and for us was in value. Some family and some friends may know their names, but most Americans never will, yet their service to our nation surely is greater than our thanks could ever repay. Their names being unknown does not affect their value. Now, just as those soldiers represented by the names on those tombstones are important, just like the people whose names are listed here in Nehemiah are important, though unknown, even if the service you render to God are never known by people, I've got news for you, your service is important. It's important to God, all right? God knows. God knows every act that you do for him. God never overlooks it. It is invaluable to him. Don't think because... People might skip over your name in a list of those who served or just because your name never makes it on the marquee or just because you are never Monday's man or Tuesday's teen or Wednesday's woman, just because you might be Friday's forgotten, you need to know that, y'all like that one? I'm sorry, okay. I didn't know it'd go over that well. Okay, good, all right. Just because that's who you are, all right, God still knows who you are and you are important to him, okay? God knows the service you do for him. So, Here's what we've seen. The people were called to sacrifice. The people were called and involved in service. And as a result, here's what we see. The people expressed joy with thanksgiving and singing. You see, as we make our way into chapter 12, we move to the end of the list of names in verses 26. And then in verse 27, we read this, Nehemiah 12, 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing. Here we see described the beginning of what we call the dedication of the wall. The people had worked hard. The wall had been rebuilt. The people's lives had begun to be restored. The city was being repopulated. And so Jerusalem was becoming alive again. We might say, in a way, the work is complete So what was the result? Rejoicing. The people sought out the religious leaders and celebrated what God had done. And what a celebration they undertook. I I love reading this expression of praise described in this chapter. Look at verse 31. Nehemiah says, Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. Look at this. This celebration was so great, you couldn't get by with one choir. It required two. Amen? They were doing some singing. I got news for you, right? This celebration that was happening here, all right, this is better than Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade, all right? 
God said, listen, there's a great celebration. And so the people broke forth to make sure they celebrated God's goodness. All right. And the picture as we read this that comes to mind is one of extreme joy. Now, one of the best verses in this chapter is verse 43. Look at it with me. All right. I'm going to try to go slow on this one. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. For women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard from far away. Did I go slow enough on that one? I hope you noticed how many times a version of the word joy was listed there. So much that when I read that verse, man, I'm filled with joy. I want to shout, and I wasn't even there, all right? And let's not overlook the reason behind all this rejoicing. The verse said that God had made them rejoice with great joy. Now, you could probably take that verse some different ways, but here's how I believe we should take it. God made them rejoice by being so good to them. It wasn't that God forced them to rejoice just so they would rejoice. I mean, no, God didn't put them in an arm bar and say, rejoice, rejoice, right? That wasn't what God was doing, no. God made them rejoice because of his goodness to them, because of the way he had worked in the lives of the people to restore them and give them a reason to rejoice. The people couldn't help but have joy. Think about this truth. The people understood their past, They knew that as a people, they had suffered because of their rebellion and their failure to follow God. They knew that Jerusalem had been destroyed as a result of God's judgment on them as a people. They knew that they had been sent to exile as a part of this judgment. In exile, they knew, listen, in exile, they knew there was no reason to sing. I'll tell you how I know that. It's because of Psalm 137. We read what it was like for the people there to be in exile. Look, look, look what we read there, Psalm 137. It says, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. And we remembered when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Look at this. How shall we sing the Lord's song? in a foreign land. What was the people's attitude and response when they were suffering in exile? We have no reason to sing. In fact, things were so bad, they simply hung up their instruments on the willow trees because there was no reason even to play them. Even when their captors demanded a song, they refused because they said, how can we sing in a foreign land? I'm here to tell you, it's bad when you have nothing to sing about, right? I'm sure you've had moments in your life like that, have you not? When things were so bad, you don't want to sing. Those times are bad because I believe that music is a gift from God that can minister to our souls. Singing with joy is a moving experience. So in exile, there is nothing to sing about. The people knew all this as the reality of their lives and experience as the people of God, all right? So they knew what they had been through. They knew why they had been through that. They knew why they had no reason at one time not to to sing. But now God, hear me, had placed a song back in their hearts, all right? Though as a people, they had experienced God's punishment. Now they had received his grace. They had received his restoration. And now the people were experiencing what it means to be rebuilt by God. And so they could not help but rejoice. You know, as I consider what God had done in the lives of the people, I think about 96. This is a psalm not specifically about the events of Nehemiah. However, it is a song that reminds of how God works in, our, in the lives of his people. 
I hesitated to read it all, but I think it's a good thing to do. So that's what we're going to do. So listen to Psalm 96. It says, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nation, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Man, what a great song, is it not? All right. Maybe I'm the only one been moved by that psalm. Maybe you weren't moved. But when I think about this psalm in light of Nehemiah, what I reminded of is that the rejoicing of the people was a way of witnessing to the world of the greatness of God. You know, in verse two of this psalm, it says, tell of his salvation day to day. God's people should be a people of rejoicing because we of all people should understand how God works, should we not? God's people should be the one that recognizes his hand at work when others don't and help them to see what God is doing in the world. It is through our rejoicing that others can come to know the God who has made us rejoice. We should not overlook the fact that in Nehemiah 12, it said that the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. What God had done in their lives was above all a witness to the power and to the glory of God, not just to his people, but to all peoples of the earth, right? So the people sacrificed, the people served, broke out in their rejoicing. Now, here's what I want us to do. Let's consider what the Lord wants us to hear from this text. I believe what the Lord would say to us simply follows what we see in this people. First, I want you to ask this of yourself this morning. What sacrifice is the Lord calling me to make? It was a sacrifice for the people to move into the city God is still calling us to make sacrifices today. The big question is, what is he wanting you to sacrifice? You know, the sacrifice the Lord calls us to is summarized best in Romans 12, 1, where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You know what God wants each person here to do is say, God, here's my life. Here's my life. God, I want to live for you. Show me, Lord, what you desire. When you make that sacrifice, everything is on the table. You all understand that? There are people who will become church planters, some moving to large metropolitan areas where there are enormous numbers of people who do not know the Lord and where the conditions can at times be dangerous, but they sacrifice saying, Lord, my life is yours. I'm going where you want me to go. God may lead you to sacrifice some of your time in an already busy schedule as you realize that what you do for God is the most important thing, and so a sacrifice of your time is not so big a thing. For others, it might be a sacrifice of your money, realizing your investment in the work of God is the best investment you can make. 
Some may be asked to sacrifice by leaving a job, to take a different job, to be in a place to minister to people. Some may be asked to sacrifice and move to a foreign country to share the name of Jesus. How you are called to sacrifice will be different for those of us in the room, but we have to be willing to ask the question. There will even be times where you feel like you don't have a choice, like the lot fell to you like it did here for those in Nehemiah 11. But folks, if the lot fell to you as you believe in God's sovereignty, I would hope you would accept the role of sacrifice willingly and say, Lord, here I am, send me. I pray everyone will ask today, what sacrifices is God asking you to make and then willingly make it? When you ask the first question, the second naturally follows as you ask. Where does the Lord want me to serve? And I put something in parentheses, even if never recognized. Some are called a sacrifice, it seems more than others, but what is clear for all of us is that God has a way for each of us to serve him. God has given us all talents that he wants to use, to use. And God has given us time to be used for him. I truly believe that no believer can ultimately find satisfaction in their relationship with God without serving in some way because service for the Lord is the key way we express our love for him. But think about this. Just as men and women have served our country to express their love for country or just as spouses serve their spouse to express their love, A believer who loves God will serve the Lord as a means of expressing his or her love for God. So are you asking the Lord, where do you want me to serve, even if I never get recognized? You see, I add that last part because you need to know that serving the Lord doesn't mean that your service will always be recognized to the people. And just because it's not recognized doesn't mean it's not important. In fact, catch this verse. In Hebrews, it says this in Hebrews 16, all right? For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. That's a great verse, is it not? God never overlooks a single thing someone does for him. God knows. In fact, this morning, you know what? There are several who are serving right now. We're here worshiping. There are several that are serving in our children's ministry so parents can come and sit and worship the Lord. And many of their names will never be known. It won't be in the highlight. But they're serving right now so we can be in here worshiping. Is their work important? Amen. I think right now about Bill and Emma and in the past, Greg, though now Bill's been around here so long at this point, he's like a star, right? I know that. (laughs) There's still times when things like what Bill's done and Greg has done, now Emma's done to help this place be clean so that we can come worship that doesn't get the recognition. They don't put their names up in lights and say, oh, look, here's here's who cleans the church, who helps, right? But their work is invaluable, is it not? We know that. Through the years, there have been those who've helped decorate or fix things that are broken, those who serve on the finance team or the personnel team, those who serve on mission teams, and those who serve in student ministry or children's ministry, as mentioned earlier, those who serve as life group leaders who have helped serve. All these things, all right? Many have served through the years without the recognition they deserve, but they have served knowing this, that they are serving God, a God who knows them and who someday will ultimately reward them. Someday, God will look at many who served relatively unknown or recognized by others and God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. In fact, I'm looking forward to those who, in fact, help prepare meals for our Valley Creek family and friends dinner in November because I know some of you, all right, cook better than me, all right? So I look forward to you, even if you don't get the pat on the back you deserve for that food, amen? That's a little plug, all right? Shameless, but I got it in there, right? But I ask God the question, seriously, where do you want me to serve? And when he shows you the answer, then serve. Now, let's ask this question. How can I give thanks so God is glorified? 
I have no doubt that as people sacrifice and as people serve, we will have many reasons to give thanks. But let's practice thanks as a regular habit of our lives. In Colossians 3, the apostle Paul said, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. See, I believe Paul's encouragement to give thanks is first prompted by the fact that if God did nothing else for us, hear me, if God did nothing else for us, he's already done all we need. Paul mentioned letting the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And the reality is that God has provided for us the means of peace. What does that mean? Salvation through Jesus Christ. When we, like the children of Israel, have rebelled against God, he rescued us. He provided a means for our lives to be rebuilt. God himself made the way by sending Jesus to come and to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He provided the opportunity for every life that, that, that one time or another found itself in shambles to be rebuilt, to be remade in Jesus. As it states in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And the fact that a person can be made new in Christ is amazing. And when a person finds true faith in Jesus and experiences this new life, it should be a time of thanksgiving. With Avery's baptism this morning, we have a reason to give thanks today, do we not? Amen. Amen. Yes, thanks for saying that strong. Amen, we do. All right. But I, I want you to notice this. When Paul gave his call to thanksgiving, in there, it, it was a corporate call. He said, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, not your heart, because this was a corporate call. He spoke about believers being in one body. In Nehemiah, the celebration of Thanksgiving broke out because of what God had done with the people corporately and in the people corporately. The people found a reason to give thanks as a body of believers because God was working in their lives corporately, not just individually. In fact, when I think about Avery's baptism, I think how Hannah invited her. And then I think about how the D-Now volunteers and staff invested in her. And then how those who involved with the student camp ministered to her. And then those who weekly poured into her and realized, until she realized, you know, her need for Christ and what we're celebrating this morning through her baptism as what God has done, not only in Avery's life, but in the life of Valley Creek. Did you follow that? Right? It's, it's what we've done, not just individually, but corporately what has happened. There's a reason. I'm saying there's a reason for us to give thanks here and to give glory to God. The reason that we are asking you to, in fact, grab a card on the table outside the sanctuary and write a reason that you have to be thankful during this season of Thanksgiving is because we want to celebrate what God is doing in the life of his people here at Valley Creek, and we want to be able to do that corporately. Now, as I close, like I, said, I just said, I know that God has given us a reason to rejoice. In fact, I, I think further about this, when I think about this reason, I look back at even what we saw this morning and I think about how Jesus sacrificed. And think about this. Jesus didn't leave the countryside to come to the city. He left heaven to come to earth. Right? He left heaven to come to earth. And when he was on earth, what did he do? He said, the son of man came to serve, I mean, to, to, to serve and not to be served. The Bible tells us he so humbled himself that, that he served even to the point of death. That though he was without sin, what did he do? Having already left 
heaven to come to earth. He then serving us in our sin. He offered his life up on a cross where he was crucified for your sin and my sin, being the servant of servants and saying, I'm willing to give my life and I'm gonna serve the Father doing what my Father has asked me to do because this is a service I rendered to my Father and he went and he died for you and for me. But then there's a reason to rejoice because yes, Jesus came. Yes, he gave his life. But three days later, what did he do? He rose up from that grave proving who he was. Proving that indeed he was God come in flesh. Proving that he was the savior of the world. Proving that he was the one, all right, who could forgive sin and give us eternal life. Amen? Because of that, he gave us a reason to rejoice. You see, this morning, above all, when I look at this, I sacrifice, I serve, and I rejoice ultimately because Jesus gave me the perfect example. I'd have no reason to sacrifice, no reason to serve, no reason today to rejoice if it wasn't for what Jesus did. Because of what Jesus did, I have a reason for all three. Now, we're, we're going to come to a time of invitation. This morning, first, let me say this to you. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, now's the time to do it. We want to rejoice this morning. Again, the, the Bible says that when one person gives their life to Jesus, there's so much rejoicing before the angels in heaven. It's amazing, right? Here's what I want. I, I want rejoicing to take place in heaven today. And if you're here this morning, you've never given your life to Jesus. Today's a good day to do that. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow, right? Brother Jacob's going to be here. I'm going to be here. If you need to talk with somebody about how you can give your life to Jesus Christ, we'll do that. Or maybe you already know and you just put it off. You've not for some reason ever taken that step of faith and say, Lord, I'm giving my life to you. Well, if not, today is the day that you can do that so we can rejoice. That's my first call to this invitation. But after that, many of you here today would say, well, Brother Scott, you know, I've already done that. I've given my life to Christ many years ago. Well, let me ask you today. Have you been asking God, God, what do you want me to sacrifice if not, maybe today is the day you come and just kneel at this altar and begin to ask that question. God, what, what sacrifice are you calling me to? Or with that, Lord, what, where is it that you want me to serve? Maybe you need to come because you've been sitting on the sidelines. You know you're not happy. Or maybe you did in the past and something through COVID or whatever, you kind of got on the sidelines and you're tired of being there. You know you need to get back in the game. Why not come this morning and say, God, show me. Where do you want me to serve? Because he's got a place and he's got a plan for you. Just ask and let him show you and then serve, Right. Because in the end, what we all want to do is rejoice. And maybe this morning, for some of you, God's already worked in your heart. Maybe you want to come and just kneel at this altar and you want to spend some time saying, God, you've been so good to me. I've got to come and kneel before you and rejoice. I don't want another day to go by without me giving thanks to you, Lord, as I need to. And you just want to come and give thanks. I don't know what you need to do, but here's what I know. We've got a God that invites us to him. All right, we give an invitation here every week, right? Because I believe we ought to have that opportunity to respond to a God who has given us an invitation. So do you need to respond? The praise team is going to come and lead us in a song. And if you need to come, again, Brother Jacob's there. I'm here. Altars all around. If you need to come and accept any kind of invitation from God, you come this morning as, as we bow together for prayer. Father, we come to you in this moment. We just so, God, rejoice in your goodness today. Lord, I know that we could spend hours more singing and rejoicing and it wouldn't begin to touch how good you've been to us. So we thank you here in Nehemiah. We saw, Lord, those sacrifices of the people and their service and then ultimately their rejoicing. And so God, as we've seen that example, now Father, speak to us. And if there's one of those things you're calling us to do in these moments, I pray 
that you would help us to respond to your call and follow you. And the end, Father, I pray what you would allow to happen here during this invitation that we find a great reason to rejoice. However that comes about, Father, we just thank you because again, as I even said, Lord, we know that if you didn't do another thing, you've already given us all the reason to rejoice we need. So bless this invitation, Father. Again, it's yours in Jesus' name. Amen.